Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The Manning has offered a permanent 40% discount code, good for their products in all formats. For the listeners of the podcast, use code PODGEEKERY20 for your 40% discount. Elmkoff is going virtual. Elmkoff returns July 15th to the 17th for three days of talks, workshops, and open spaces. Everyone is welcome. Join them from the comfort of your own home. Their call for proposals is now open through June 1st. In addition to 25-minute talks, this year they're soliciting proposals for two- and four-hour workshops and open spaces. Time for discussions and hacking modern. Early bird tickets are now available as well, and the price will go up once they announce speakers. So get in now for the early bird price. You can find out more at 2020.elm-conf.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you'll find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. If there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Martin J. Logan. Martin, welcome back to the show. It's been a long while. Glad to have you back. Thanks, Proctor. It's really good to be back. It's been quite a while since we've spoken. So... Got brought up again because I knew you'd been doing some functional programming in some of the larger corporations, and I knew you'd played with some stuff, but there was a comment on the Erlang community about, hey, what was some of the hardest stuff to grasp about Erlang? And I responded with processes, and where do you break down the line for processes, and that R call and a couple of your talks that you gave, the Lambda Jam up in Chicago, and I'll get links to that in the show notes, but it was talking about how do you break down processes and where does it look like? And I've recommended that talk to a number of people in the local Erlang group when we have new people coming in to say, hey, here's a good talk about, like, how do you think about this stuff? Oh, great. But it'd been a while, and I figured it was useful to get you back on and see how things were going, because I know you've also played with a bunch of other functional languages in the meantime. So it's been probably five years or so since we've had you on. So can you give an update to people about what you've been doing in the meantime? Yeah, for sure. So. I've been doing mostly CTO jobs now for the last number of years. Made the switch into the under the dark side, you know, management. And so I think it's less what I've been doing specifically with functional programming languages and more what I've been doing to bring functional programming languages into organizations. And you know, that's historically been a little bit tough. I think my history and background has given me a leg up and was able to build some really successful functional programming organizations at guaranteed rate. We had 10 plus teams all doing closure. And that was a two-year process to kind of get over the hump, you know, and really sink that into where we were truly a functional programming shop and tremendously rewarding, but learned a ton along the way. And now I'm at William Hill, which is I think the world's second largest sports betting outfit huge in, in the UK and now coming to the US and looking to take over here. And I've been building things up there. And this time it's the Scala language because there's a little beachhead of Scala already there. 
And I thought, well, let's leverage that and take it forward and just applying the lessons that I've learned and we're already seeing great momentum with uh, with Scala. So that's been really rewarding and looking forward to kind of continuing that evolution. So we covered a bunch of your other background and how you got into functional programming and Erlang and the whole history around your Erlang side. So people can go yeah. back and listen to that episode. Yeah. So we won't cover that a lot here. But around that time, shortly after, there was Erlang Camp in like October of 2014, I want to say. And went down to Austin for that. Yeah, we did five of those. And then we talked a little bit, and I think that you were at guaranteed rate then, and you were trying to beachhead some F-sharp in because it Uh was a .NET shop. So what were some of the transitions of going in and getting dirty day-to-day with Erlang? But you were also doing a lot of training with Erlang Camp and Erlware and a bunch of libraries. And you were already starting the advocate from the community side. But when you're actually bringing it into a group that's fresh and not necessarily first interest in approaching you to figure out how to do this stuff, because, hey, we're already picking up Erlang, you've got a community there that's already kind of willing to listen. What was this when you were pulling this in and trying to bring to a community who may or may not have exposure to functional programming? What were some of those first roots there? Yeah, so... You know, yeah, I was doing obviously a lot with Erlang, although I would say it was by 2014, I was sort of on the tail end of my heavy community involvement. I was, I got started back in 99 with Erlang. And so I'd come to Guaranteed Rate and they wanted to build the country's first really online. You can fully get a mortgage online. And that's why I went there. We ultimately did release that. And in order to do it, I had to really raise the bar on a technical team that was there because the mortgage process is crazy complicated and really variable. And so we had to sort of raise the bar on it. And in my early days, you know, I thought, well, it'd be great to bring some functional programming into this place and kind of just give the guys that are there something to intellectually stimulate them, you know, just to raise the level of craftsmanship, get people thinking again. And so I I went out and I got a book on F-sharp and, you know, I figured it wouldn't be too hard. I've heard some good things about F-sharp. It looks like ML. So brought the book in sat down with you know a number of the engineers and we started going through it unfortunately the books on the topic were not very good and the tooling in the microsoft ecosystem is not very good and people were having trouble learning it and i wasn't an expert in it so i didn't understand the microsoft ecosystem so it's hard for me to teach it and you know folks were just floundering it's bad when the cto is the one that's doing the best in sort of the book club chapter demos you know like i should be doing the worst because i'm not coding every day and so I was like, okay, this just doesn't seem working. Around the same time, I really looked to, there was a different movement to kind of open up and make us a bit more of a polyglot shop and not just a strict .NET shop. We wanted to use more AWS. It was much more economical to do that with Linux. And so that was going on. And those two things together made me think, well, maybe a change of gears here. Maybe F sharp isn't the right language to really bring into this place. Were people actually interested in learning F-sharp, or was that kind of a rough-selling <laughs> point that said, well, I guess this we're doing this because the CTO is kind of starting this book club, and <laughs> we've kind of got to go along with this, or at least play happily along, but we're not really looking for that intellectual stimulation? What was that that actually started, and was it the social challenges on top of the training and source material at the time? 
what was the balance between those two? Because I've seen it both ways where some people are like, I'm good with the way I'm doing things. I don't really need to find a new paradigm or anything else to do stuff versus I'm interested, but where do I start? Yeah, very insightful question as usual, Proctor. There definitely, I think, was some of that for some of the people. There were a few in there. It was one of the guys that really, you know, he's sort of like, wow, this is great. But it was tough because the book was not great. I think there was some of the, hey, the CTO's doing this. I asked for volunteers that tried to do it as kind of an egalitarian way. But yeah, it's impossible to fully escape. So we had a book that was really lackluster and hard for people that had never done functional programming at all to really understand. And then there were just folks in there that I think they just weren't fully motivated. You know, it wasn't like you or I or many others that are probably listening to this when you found out about functional programming and that light went off and you just were obsessed with it. Like that wasn't the group that was in there, right? They weren't people that had previously been sort of dying to get to try functional programming. So if this one kind of floundered just because of the whole situation, yeah, things in your control, things out of your control, everything else, you start looking at the polyglot world and Closure comes along. What made Closure the choice? Was there any other things that you were playing with? Was there a whole suite of languages you were trying to get people to go say, hey, why don't we take a look at these X number of languages? Was there a fielding benchmarking across all these? Or was Closure just, let's try another language next and something else? So at the time, right, I got to build this. I got a team that is not up to the task. I've got to do a ton of recruiting. And I've got to build a team that is capable of building this online mortgage product. So I have to do a whole lot of recruiting as well as just kind of raise the caliber. And I had this idea in mind, which was, it was a bet that I wanted to make. It's like, how am I going to recruit in this incredibly challenging recruiting climate? And my bet was this. My bet was that there are more smart and talented individuals that want to learn functional programming then there are companies smart or brave enough to give it a try. And so I thought, well, if I can give us a name for this, if I can like make functional programming a thing here, then I can just sort of scoop the cream right off the top of the programming community in Chicago and bring those people in here. Mortgage isn't the sexiest place to be, but building the country's first online mortgage and doing that in a functional language, that's pretty damn sexy. And so this for me was a recruiting play. I was like, I'm going to get a functional language in here. And so as we moved off of the .NET ecosystem, look, I wasn't going to come in and just take us completely off .NET. If a new CTO comes in and their first move is to just do a tech migration, you should fire them right away. But I did want to open things up a little bit, get a little bit more polyglot, see if there were parts of the system that could communicate through an API that were separate from other parts of the system that I could start to build within a functional language. So I started reaching out to my community of people around the city and doing some hunting. And I was able to find a guy that he was an ex-college professor and he was just extremely good at, you know, he was well-known, extremely good at, at closure. That was his thing. One of the things I'd learned in the past is through different management experiments is that if you're going to do something new, you want at least one what I call anchor. You want one person that really knows how to do it, that can set your architecture off on the right footing, that can teach and mentor the rest of the group. And so I needed that anchor. I didn't think Erlang was the right language. And the reason for that was maybe without saying why Erlang wasn't, 
The reason closure was good is because it's on the JVM. And so any sort of worry from other parts of management, like what is this crazy thing you're doing? It's well, we're just doing we're doing Java. This JVM line, it runs on the same thing as Java. It's basically Java that interoperates with Java. So we had this sort of wonderful excuse. And then, you know, we'd also allow us to bring in, we brought in some really good Java programmers. And so it would allow us to kind of work with them. And they were interested in learning closure. And so it just had this nice mix. A ton of Java programmers in Chicago, not a ton of .NET. If we do a language running on the JVM and we bring in Java people that are smart and interested in learning functional, they're going to be able to make the transition. So there's just a whole lot of reasons that closure fit. And I was able to find this guy that was a pro and could teach everybody else. And so it just all kind of came together, and that was the language that we went with. So you found an anchor. You found someone. You said he was, if he was a college professor, he's got the teaching skills, I would hope. How much of that was revamped from the F-sharp pointing side? Because I know Clojure, even if in Chicago, had a pretty good popular community. What lessons or takeaways... And if you did it in Scala, again, and we may cover it now, but if you want to talk about some of those, what are some of the things that are the right way to approach it, since it sounds like you had success with Clojure, aside from finding that anchor or someone who knows it and can make sure the foundations are there from the beginning? Yeah, so the anchor is extremely important. Commitment is another thing that's important. So when we started doing this, the fear that was engendered in a large part of that development community there at, at that company was tremendous. People were worried that uh, the typical, I, I think I've given talks on this way back in the day at some of the airline conferences. People think of functional programming as this sort of like mathematical thing that they can't understand. What do you bring in like category theorists into the company? Like I'm never going to be able to keep up with this. It creates a lot of fear. And so you got to have commitment to be able to get through that. Another thing you got to have is empathy, right? And the willing to really sit down with people and give them the confidence that one, you can learn it and give them sense that, you know, for the folks that you really want there, that, hey, look, I'm with you. Like, I know your productivity is going to go down, but I'll stick with you. You know, like we're committed to helping you learn this and you're going to get slower, but then you're going to get faster. And I'm willing to invest in you and invest in us to get through that period. And so commitment is huge as a manager or as if you're not a manager and you're bringing this in, you've got to get that commitment for management because there is a cost to it. You don't get faster right away. You get slower and then you get a lot faster. If you're doing this at Vasila, what are some of those things that you either had people down at the individual contributor, the just day-to-day programmer level, what are some of those things that you found from that perspective, that helps grow it at the grassroots? Because I've heard a lot of transitions, just regardless of what it is in bigger companies, is you need people at the top level advocating for it, and you need people at the lower levels, individual levels, grassroots level, pushing it up as well to help kind of squeeze the middle. What were some of the things that a person that's not in the C-level office can take away that helps with some of these transformations and helps bring along their peers with this that you found? Yeah. Some of the things that kind of make it more successful from the grassroots level are participation and creating learning opportunities. So even right now, we got a big Scala book club and I attend it, but it's not led by me anymore. Another person has stepped up and really kind of jumped on it. And so that participation, that mentoring of other people, that willingness to work through the exercises of the book club and make sure that each one is 
full of questions and great content insights. And that is tremendously important. Another thing that can be done is one of the things necessary to make this successful, there's a lot of things to touch on. But another thing that makes it successful is you've got to have projects to work on. You can't just come in and read books on functional programming and then become good at it. The only way to get people to make this work is you must identify projects that people can work on eight hours a day. And so as a C-level person, like I don't know all the places and all the things that can be worked on. When we've got three people working on this, I might know about some big initiatives, but I might not know about some of the supporting services and other things that can be written in this language or converted or whatever that would make sense that are of the right size. So bringing the ideas of what would really lend itself to this kind of programming, which projects are lower risk that you can get going on, participating in the, you know, sort of book clubs or other learning opportunities and just really kind of like helping to build the culture, helping to build the excitement around it is something that anybody can do. And you also mentioned you were taking the bet. You made the bet that says, if we advertise ourselves as a functional programming shop, yes, we might have to train people, but we will not have a problem finding people. People will come to us. I've heard that view and I've heard the, well, yes, but there may only be a hundred closure programmers in Chicago. And if we're looking at this, we can get 10,000 Java programmers versus a hundred closure programmers, whether or not some of those Java programmers want to be trained or not. I've heard both sides of those arguments, and they both seem to have some merit. Maybe it's depending on the side of the country. Maybe it's just the attitude you approach it with at the higher levels. How did you find that bet payoff? Maybe I'll make an analogy to OTP. People would always say, well, the OTP distribution mechanism and creating a cluster doesn't scale past a few hundred nodes, maybe up to a thousand nodes or something. Okay, well, you know, for problems then of, of a thousand nodes or less, like have at it. Don't worry about it. If you really think you're going to grow to past a thousand nodes, then maybe you want to think about something else. But it certainly works for large class of problems. And it's the same thing with this, right? So how big of a team are you looking to build? You know, we probably had 200 people in the technology part of this and 10 or so teams you can find that many people. Like if you're looking to build the software development arm of Amazon with all people that are ready, no closure, like, yeah, well, good luck with that, right? You're going to have to train people. But we could find enough people, easily enough people, so that every single team had a few closure developers on it. And as we got bigger and got really attractive, you know, we had guys that work with Rich Hickey on the language itself working for us, that worked at Cognitech working for us. That's how exciting it became, right? Talk about like skimming the cream off the top of the programming community. These guys were brilliant and they were working for a mortgage company. You <laughs> like that's almost comical, you know, that it, it was that interesting, the tech we were working on and doing it all in closure. Like it was a dream come true for a lot of people. So yeah, it worked. You don't need every single person being an expert programmer in the developer in the language that you're choosing. You want to be able to bring enough in so that each team can get one or two. And the other strategy is like, yeah, you're going to have to train. But once they're trained up, they're crushing it. They're going so much faster. If you're a functional programming devotee, you know the code is less, the bugs are less, it's easier to reason about all those benefits. You're getting all of that stuff. And training the folks up is not too hard. You, you put them on a team where people are already doing this eight hours a day. And in two months, they're rocking and rolling. And in five, they are crushing it. 
And here's the other benefit. Imagine coming to this place, you know, as some Java programmer, or Ruby programmer, or whatever, Python. You learn functional programming from a bunch of really smart people that are obviously excited about it. The light bulb goes off, as you know it does, right? The light bulb goes off and you realize, oh my God, what have I been missing for my whole life? Do you ever want to leave and like go do some Java job again? Like, no, <laughs> not at all. Like the idea of, I've been through that. Like, you know, I remember when one of the airline shops closed up, you know, I was moving on. I was like, oh God, the thought of like going back and doing C, the C++ at the time was like, I, like it was giving me nightmares. So, you know, the retention that you get also is huge because you're one of those places that was smart and brave enough to take a bet on better technology. And once the engineers that are working there see it, they don't want to leave. And you said you need one or two people on the team. What size are these teams? Are these like one or two people out of a team of five, or is this one or two people out of a larger team of 20, 30, 50, if it's kind of groups of teams of teams? What does that benchmark mean? I would say teams are between five and ten people. And really what you need is just every team needs an anchor, right? You can't have a bunch of people that are just learning the language, writing a bunch of code for you. And so it sort of goes back to that initial strategy of, of getting this whole thing up and running, right? So you bring in this one guy that really knows it. And then you find that one bit of technology that can be written in this. And then you build a team of people that are initially not scared, right? That are like, hey, I'm pretty interested in that. It's got to be a volunteer team, the people that want to do it. They get onto that team, they start working on this stuff, and it'll take about six months, right? Because you got this one person, nobody's done it, there's no culture on it, there's no docs, no support, there's no nothing, right? But six months from doing that, six months, you know, of cranking on real projects with somebody that knows what they're doing, and now you've got a group of people that are up to speed. And the people that started on this team are like, the, you know, they're usually quite smart, right? The ones that volunteer and kind of see the light on this some bright people on there. So they learn this. Now they're up to speed. And then you start to create other teams around them. So it starts with this C. It starts with the anchor. The anchor then trains a team of four, five, six people. As people get up to speed where they're getting really good and the anchor's like, they're ready, then we send them off like a spore. We send them off and we form another team around another project and this person kind of does the same thing, gets that team trained up. And you do that two or three times. You're working on documentation. We also built something called Closure University, or Closure University that I can tell you about to help further support the learning as we went along. Yeah, I want to hear about that. But just to recap, it sounds like you've almost got a couple of these anchors that are not just team members, but they're also, some people call them community of excellence. Some people call them the coaches, some people call them a bunch of different things, but they're essentially your seed employees on these projects that you go, they're responsible for seeding a group, bringing it up, getting them to be productive, and then they're kind of internal contractors where they go and help bring that team up and then move on to the next team. And it's, is it just them or do you let other people do that too and mix and match? So the person who was on that, one of the follow-ons, they get to go and start to be those coaches. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So it's more of that peer-to-peer. It's not that these people have to go and start many teams. It's that we had a count, you know, we put it, put it up on the wall. We have a count of like people that are sort of like closure certified now, for lack of a better term, right? But people that have like, that are legit closure developers or whatever the language is, right? That have, have mastered it, right? They are capable of building an application 
on their own to high architectural standards, high code standards. They wouldn't get dinged on a code review by the experts on it. They are now ready. And so once they're ready, then we sort of said, look, you know, it wouldn't, it's not right for everybody. You might have someone that just isn't, you know, good at this, right? But for the people that were, that were good at it, and so look, we want to form a team, you know, now around you. We want to tackle this other project. And so you take them off of the original seed team and you put them on another team. And now they start working on a project. And the original seed team was code reviewing that team stuff and kind of helping them out. And they were now supporting each other. Now there was two teams doing this. We had started off with this one tool to do stuff with title company interaction for like complicated closing stuff, billions of numbers, and you had to version it all. So that that's what we first built. And then we took this one guy off of that team and he moved off and he started working on this back-end API technology that we needed built with a few other people. And they did it in closure and they did it kind of in concert with the original team, but, you know, also separate, right? It was its own team. Now you're a year on, right? By a year on, we had three teams that were sort of getting up to speed and a handful of people that were, you know, really good and a number of others that like, you know, could stand on their own two feet. By I'd say a year and a half, that's when it really sort of exploded. And the other thing that we sort of noticed was the fear went away. So you go through these cycles of at first, people are scared of functional programming and they're like, God, you know, and the people don't want to do it. They think they're going to get fired. So you got to really reassure them, spend the time, tell them you're going to invest in them, et cetera, et cetera. Then it moves on and there's sort of people are upset. You know, there's rumors going around and some people are loving it. Some people aren't. There's tension, right? And then you move on from there and now people are getting curious and some people are coming over and voluntarily saying, hey, I want to learn closure now because they see all these other people doing it successfully. And then you finally get to this point where it's just assumed. All the new people come on, they're, they're doing closure. Pretty much everybody you know, in the organization has volunteered themselves to kind of do it. And you're just this closure shop. I never intended for it to be used in the front end. Next thing I know, the front end developers themselves had brought closure into the front end and we did the whole digital mortgage if you go to guaranteed rate and you you click through it and you try to do a you know you get a loan that whole thing's written in closure the front end it's not even javascript which is really amazing and so people just start bringing it in all over the place you know it's react redux you know kind of a closure wrapper there but you go through these phases and by a year and a half in People were starting to self-select in. We had a number of teams that were doing it. We had a bunch of people that were sort of certified in closure. And then by two years, you know, it's over, right? It's the dominant language. People are the conversations you hear in the hallway are about list macros and um, category theory and referential transparency and all, you know, just the whole place has changed, right? It's amazing. And then we go on from there and we literally became just a magnet for people, you know, folks, smart folks. We went from being a mortgage company that, you know, a mortgage company that maybe people wouldn't want to necessarily work at or it didn't sound like the most exciting thing to a kind of a destination place to work. And then before we get into the experience with Scala, because I'm curious about what that looks like, considering Scala is a lot more shapeshiftery than you would have with an Erlang yeah. or a Closure, because Erlang, Closure, and a couple of F-sharp even are distinct enough that you can't kind of get by with writing the same old code, whereas from what I've seen of some Scala, you can treat it like an extension to Java and not really have to have the mindset shift. Similar with JavaScript and trying to bring in JavaScript functionally 
Before we get to there, I'd like to touch on what that closure university or just one of these programs looks like when you're having this thing that says, hey, go sign up for these courses or groups or whatever that is helping to bring you up and level you up and being signed off as like, hey, we recognize you as you're there enough to stand on your own and potentially go see it another team. So Closure University, essentially what we did was we put together a curriculum and just a group of us created some talks to help people kind of get ramped up and mostly to make the transition from imperative OO to functional. I think that was probably a big value in it. You know, you can only learn so much of a language in a certain amount of time. But the biggest thing that it brought was not just the classroom time, which was about an hour a week and then an hour a week of office hours each week. It had different instructors each week depending on who was giving the talks. We had four weeks of different talks, but the really important part was spending the time to organize the coding buddy, the pair programming. So making sure that anybody in Closure University had full-time Closure work outside of Closure University, that they were on a team. It wasn't just to come in and sort of learn it for no reason, that they were on a team and that they had pairs, people that were dedicated to sitting down with them and working through the problems from the university as well as working on like actual day-to-day stuff, having fixed bugs, do all that kind of thing. So it was just to supplement their learning. So day-to-day, got a team, you're working on stuff eight hours a day, your team is helping you, but then you're also going and you're getting a load of theory, you're getting the people that you can ask questions of. And so it's just deepening the learning and probably, you know, maybe speeding up the time it takes for you to get to a proficiency level where you can kind of stand on your own two feet because, you know, otherwise you're just hammering at it. Maybe you're reading a book at home, but, you know, we wanted to deepen that just kind of an instructor experience. So I think it was. I think it probably shaves a month off your learning time. What were some of the main topics that you found were key to helping bring people along? Were there certain closure topics that were key? Were there certain just language agnostic topics that were key just around the functional mindset? What were some of those things that, as you refined this and you went on, you found that these were the things that helped accelerate and add fuel to the fire for some of the stuff, even if they're doing it day in and day out? Well, I think one of the things that really helps with it was the install party that was part of it. So it would just kind of make sure that your environment was right. You might have gotten it set up on your own or done something with your team, but like somebody really sitting down with you, like I was at the pre-first week session sit down and really help you dial in your environment and like get a pro setup going. So that really helped. We called it install party. And then in the first week, it was just going through some of the language basics and just explaining them and allowing people to ask questions. They might have seen things before, but not understood it and so on. So I think you got to do, you know, in airline camp, we always have airline essentials. You know, you got to do that basic stuff. From there, we went on and, and really talked about theory, right? So I would typically give a talk on what is functional programming and why, like what's good about it. I think that theory is really helpful so people can kind of think about it moving forward. Maybe it gets rid of a little bit of fear that kind of makes the world of functional programming a bit smaller for them. It kind of puts some bounds around it so they can understand what it is and why and what the benefit is. So as they're going through, maybe that light bulb moment happens even faster. And then a really great section that I think really helped a lot was talking about in OO, you've got various techniques, right? So in OO, you might do dependency injection. In a functional language, maybe you're going to curry a function, right? Partially apply a function. Pipeline. There's just all these techniques within functional programming that, that you use to do X, Y, and Z, where in OO, you'd reach for different tools. And so I think that day of talks 
really, I think is really pivotal for folks to just understand that, okay, you're, this is a different environment. You got to look at how you solve problems differently. And you brought up the concurrency thing earlier. You know, if you're working in something like airline, okay, well, you're not going to break down your system and design it in the same way. You're going to look at it from a completely different perspective. And it is that way with functional programming as well. And you're doing this again with Scala. That one was with Clojure, but we are also, I am doing it again with Scala, yes. You're rebuilding a functional organization using Scala this time. What are the things that you found different between them? Because as I kind of touched on, Scala doesn't force you as much to make the shift. You can still write imperative code in Erlang. You can still write imperative code in Clojure. It just doesn't look the same, so you kind of have this mental break. One of the reasons I like some of these different languages is I can go in and be like, uh, which thing is this? This is different enough to kind of forces a reset in my head, even if it takes a few minutes to ramp up and be productive if I haven't touched it in a while and remember the exact nuances of the syntax and everything. But when you're doing this in Scala, what changed? What was the same? And then I guess on top of that is, was there anything that changed because of the things you learned doing this multiple times? Yeah, Scala is a really interesting beast. And so, yeah, on one side, it has all this OO and imperative stuff in it. So you can do both. So the idea was, well, you ease your transition in from something like Java and, you know, it'll help you, right? And I think that's wrong, actually. It's sort of a hindrance because people just follow the same bad habits that they always had. And so there's that side of it. But that also makes it simpler. It makes it more familiar in a lot of ways. And it makes it hard to push people to do the functional side of it because they get in and they just do the OO stuff and they do things the way they've always done. So there's a challenge to kind of push people and like create a set of rules, which we had to do, you know, a set of principles that says you're going to code this way and explain why, right? And get people really understanding that. And then on the other side, it adds this incredible complexity too because the community is so steeped in category theory and run by type theorists and it's a very erudite community, I'll say that. And so if, you know, you go try and check out a Scala conference, you won't understand anything, you know, like when you get there first, like it's half the talks are attending math class. And so you bring new people into that and it's incredibly intimidating. And they get the sense that you can't do functional programming without monoids and monads and combinators and all this jargon that gets thrown around. And so that, it just intimidates the heck out of people. So approaching Scala, I definitely had to do it differently. And so we started out with Scala University. It didn't quite work to do just a set of talks. We've just so much to it. So we've actually found a good book and we've been sort of doing a book club that we're going to repeat and refine over time. So we're basically going through it and kind of getting our curriculum with quite a good group of people. And then we're going to refine that and shorten it and really, you know, turn it into a more concise class. But yeah, Scala Scala is definitely tricky because of that. The good part about it, though, is it's been really rewarding to go through and kind of learn it. Because if you haven't done a strongly typed functional programming language, Scala is a good one because it runs on the JVM. And there are other languages, you know, COT, but they're all simplified. Scala will expose you to, you know, sort of everything you'd get out of Haskell on the JVM. And it's a language that's well-supported, has tons of libraries, has a big community, so it's safe to use at a company. It's not like you're going off and using uh, 
I think there is Haskell on the JVM, but you know, like six people use it. You're using something that is, is sort of safe to try as an organization, but will expose people to some very advanced concepts. Streams and Scala, unbelievably powerful, really fascinating. So I think there's just a lot to be gained from it, but the commitment is even greater because you've got to steer people away from all the OO stuff and motivate to them why they shouldn't do that. And you've also got to like wade through just an incredibly difficult set of concepts that are just so ubiquitous in the community that you can't get away from them if you want to do the functional side of it. So we've covered a wide range of topics. We've covered a bunch of different things regarding the top level views, the lower level views, how you train people, the seating practices to actually go from non-functional to functional. There's a few other questions that I think of, but before I go on to those, are there any other lessons or takeaways that you want to call out explicitly that we haven't covered? Just funny, as you talk, you get a better summary in your head of all the things you've spoken about. But yeah, outside of summarizing it, I don't think there's anything that we haven't covered yet. I think we've covered most of it. There's a few other things that I might want to dig in a little deeper on. One of them is we talked about at the grassroots level. You were coming in as a CTO, so they didn't have to make the sale up to the CTO. If they're making the sale and they don't have a community, because you said in the pre-call when you were talking, there was a little beachhead of scholar there already. What are some of those things there that help people establish the beachhead and get something there, even if they don't have some of that higher level executive support and they're just trying to grassroots this purely at the lower level because... A, they want to share it. B, they think it's it'll be easier for their lives and everybody else's once people get it. Whatever the reasons are, what are some of those things that you've either coming into cross organizations and finding those anchors that are already in place and just identifying them? What are some of the things that people have done either in the organizations you've been at or other organizations you've seen that have made that convincing easier for a new CTO coming in to pick that language or maybe help selling some other people aside from this CTO and just helping to build that at a grassroots level? Let me just see if I can summarize the question. So just what are some of the things that people can do at a grassroots level to perhaps make the ground more fertile for a functional transformation? And were any of those things done? We already had functional programming at William Hill, and so were any of those things done to sort of make that happen prior to my getting there? Does that sum it up? That's a perfect summary. So I think the things that people can do to make it easier, one thing is point to other organizations that have been really successful with it. And there are a bunch of them out there and I'm doing my darndest to make more of them. And this is the reason, like there's also this calling of I've spent my entire career evangelizing and trying to help the functional community grow because functional programming is simply better than imperative and we should all be doing it. So I think pointing to other organizations that have been successful, I think understanding that particularly languages on the JVM, super safe to try, not a problem, right? They interact with everything else. It's really just like doing Java. I think that's really something that management can understand. I think that helping to bring on somebody or helping to identify people that can teach this stuff Helping management hire somebody that can serve as that anchor, that can be an evangelist, bring management out to lunch with that person to sort of listen to what they have to say would be a great thing that folks can do. Identifying, you know, a project that can be done in this, 
but then really, really focusing in on making it successful. So William Hill tried Erlang a while ago, and they weren't successful with it because they went at it, and it was a, a number of people that they didn't have the anchor, and so kind of went at it the wrong way. And I've seen this happen in a lot of companies where adventurous engineers want to try something, and they're really excited about it, and they overestimate their own abilities. I think one of the biggest things you can do to give management a feeling of trust is focus on the business value and show them that you understand the risks, right? Not that we're going to go flying into some architecture project because we as engineers are happy about it. No, it's that we think there's real value here, that this is going to help us competitively, that we feel very strongly we can successfully do the project. And here's, you know, here's the things we're doing to make sure that we don't fail the project. Build the trust in them that they understand that you know, you care whether this thing succeeds or fails and that you're taking steps to make sure that it, it succeeds. I think that's that's really big. A lot of times management gets the feeling that this is a, a learning project rather than a delivery project. And don't make it just a learning project. It needs to be a delivery project. And if you approach it that way, you have a much better chance of getting management to buy in to doing it. Well, that sounds like a great summary and takeaway because I know we're also approaching a time for the stop because of some of the technical issues, so we had to cut this a little bit short, but thanks for being on, and we'll have to get, definitely get you on again soon. Definitely more than five years between episodes to give an update, <laughs> give some rundowns, and see if you've started adoptions with other languages, because it's always a pleasure talking with you and seeing how that evangelization has been going from your end, whether it was the Erlang and Erlang camps and Erlware and everything else you were doing there in the books versus what you were just talking about with some of this closure and Scala and even the attempt at F-Sharp. So thanks for taking your time today. Pleasure talking to you as always, and we'll have to get you back on sooner than later. Thank you, Proctor. It's been a real pleasure. And definitely before five years, I'll let you know how this Scala experiment goes. I'm sure it's going to be successful, though. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for Fogo, and until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.